Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. Today we're talking with Dr. Ben Michaelis, Ph.D., He's a full-time practicing psychologist in Manhattan, so you can imagine the type of people that come through the door, but he's also a popular speaker and a blogger as well. Author of Your Next Big Thing, 10 Small Steps to Get Moving and Get Happy. Really interesting points here, a lot of uh, stoicism involved, but we're gonna talk about why it's impossible to avoid stress, cognitive biases that get in your way, how to get the right amount of the right kind of stress. We're gonna talk about different ways to do that in the morning through your exercise and through non-exercise methods. It's interesting that there's a right kind of stress that you're actually supposed to have that will keep you from having too much of the wrong kind of stress. So it's, I know it's a little bit of a tongue twister, but it's a really interesting concept that I'd never heard before. So enjoy this one with Dr. Ben Michaelis. Welcome on that note, to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and exceptional individuals to teach you how to be a top performer in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a curriculum. We may not have all the answers, but we definitely have all the questions. Make sure to stay up to date with AOC and get some great stuff that we can't share on the show by signing up at theartofcharm.com. We'll email you our fundamentals toolkit that covers topics like body language and nonverbal communication, persuasion, business networking, public speaking, negotiation, and a whole lot more. I'm also doing weekly video drills and exercises to help you move forward every single week. Of course, we've got our live programs running here in LA. If you're interested in that, you'll hear more about those later on in the show. You can email me, jordan at theartofcharm.com. I also want to encourage you to join us in our social capital challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge or text charmed to 33444. That's charmed to 33444. This challenge is all about improving your networking and connection skills and inspiring those around you to develop a personal and professional relationship with you. This will make you a better networker. It will make you a better connector as well. And if you want some accountability, invite your friends to go to theartofcharm.com slash challenge or text charmed, charmed to 33444 and they can join the challenge too. Enjoy this one with Dr. Ben Michaelis. So tell us what you do in one sentence. I am a clinical psychologist, thought partner, and coach. Okay. What is a thought partner? You know, it's a great question. It's basically a a lot of people come in because they don't have someone necessarily to just bounce ideas off of. And so I end up being a thought partner to lots of pretty smart people that just need an outside source that's not inside their worlds that they can 
try out ideas on. Or for example, like one guy who I work with, who's a CEO who actually had very limited experience firing somebody needed to fire his number two. And it was very difficult for him. It's very emotional. And so we just kind of worked through it for a while before he actually pulled the trigger. So I kind of think about that as thought partnering rather than therapy. That must have been really tough to fire your, by the time you have a big enough company, your number two's probably been with you for like two decades. Yeah, exactly. And the emotional relationship that we form with people that we work with, it can sometimes, you know, be even more intense than the emotional relationship we have with family members because we spend so much time, especially, you know, him and people that work around the clock, so much time at work. So it was basically like firing a, a wife or a daughter. Um, so it was a really <laughs> difficult process. And that was, you know, a, a really, I think, a powerful example of how thought partnering can help. Yeah. Right now, someone out there is going, you can fire your daughter? <laughs> Hang on a second. <laughs> that's what this pod, that's what this, this episode's going to be all about. Firing your daughter. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's a good title. And you've been in a lot of media outlets as too. And one of my new policies is, by the way, whenever people list all the media outlets they're on, I pick the lamest one and I talk about that one. So congratulations on the Hallmark Channel's home and family appearance. Oh, that was epic. That <laughs> yeah. was epic. It was a very LA experience uh, yeah. hanging out in that house with, with the folks there. So I got invited to do something on the Hallmark Channel and they were like, we got to get going on the segment because we have something with birdhouses was up next. And I was like, <laughs> wow, I am, I'm getting bumped for birdhouses. That's all right, <laughs> like, though. Like we're doing a story about how next month is March. So nobody forgets because a lot of the people watching the Hallmark Channel might not know that. Excellent. And you're a motivational psychologist, which which is something I hadn't heard about, versus a demotivational psychologist, which Jason and I were joking is someone where you're like, my life is over. And they're like, yeah, that's what it sounds like. I'll never find love. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> that, that, that's pretty much how we do. No, I tried the demotivational thing for a while, but I could not make a go of it for a business. Um, it was fun for me. Yeah. I don't know. I had like 10 people over three weeks. You know, I was just, just a total crap to them. And then uh, it just fell apart. So I decided to go with the motivational psychology instead. But what does that mean, though? I mean, how is that different from a regular psychologist? Aren't all psychologists and therapists supposed to motivate you and keep you moving forward? Not really. Uh, you know, actually, in, in many ways, the field, I think, for a long time has been mired in focusing on the negative and, you know, spending a lot of time on people's past. And I don't really care about, you know, like James Brown, I don't care about your past. Once I have somebody in my office and I do have a sense of who they are and where they come from, I'm really focused on two things, which is now and next and how to get there. I'm super concrete with people. People leave my office with very concrete assignments. I really do try to leverage what I know about emotions to get people to you know, do what they, what they say they're going to do, what they want to do. For example, this one woman who I'm working with uh, is applying for or wants to apply for graduate school. And I told her that if she didn't have her essay in to just not come back uh, the next week. Um, and let me show you. Never saw she, her again. She, that was it. That's the demotivational part. No, she came back in with an essay written. And people really do appreciate that. The data really strongly suggests that even though we have all these fantastic apps out there that can kind of keep us on point, the ones that do well are the ones that have somebody on the other end of it. So there's a real human connection that keeps people on track and on point to do what they say they're going to do. You worked on Sesame Street for a while, which I think is kind of cool. I, I normally, did. you know, normally I don't <laughs> dig into people's bios, but I was like, wow, Sesame Street, everybody knows what that is. 
Yeah, that was a great experience. I learned a lot from people that make that show. Um, and what people don't realize about Sesame Street is that it's actually extremely well-researched. Everything that you see on the air has been vetted very heavily through a really rigorous research project. And I mean, it was started by academics, and it really still has that tradition. You know, I really uh, learned a lot about how to get ideas out there in the world from from my experiences there. Because that show, one of the things that's interesting about Sesame Street is that people think of it as like, oh, the show that teaches ABCs and one, two, threes. But that's actually not really true. By the time that most kids, at least in this country, I should say, are old enough to watch the show and appreciate the show, they know all that stuff already. The show is really about the pro-social messages. And that's why it was pretty radical in the 70s to have a show where like black people and white people and Latino people and monsters were all living on the same street. And that was really, in many ways, the idea behind the show. Thanks for being monster inclusive, by the way. I I always am. Because when when I don't, it's just the hate mail I get. It's just horrible. I can only imagine. I can only imagine. And the writing, the way the way the monsters write with these crayons, it's just it's it's not it's it's insulting and it's embarrassing. Like you get these letters from these monsters, and you're just like, oh god, you know. So tell me, tell me what the social messages are behind that stuff, because I remember watching Sesame Street, and there's whole songs about how "Hola" means hello in Spanish, or or the French version. I got two versions of Sesame Street living in Detroit because we got Canadian TV, so I got to learn French from the l- little orange guy, and Spanish from the rest of the the crew. <laughs> I thought you were going to say there was like a special Detroit version that tells you like how to like roam the streets at night <laughs> with like <laughs> chain mail and stuff. <laughs> right, scavenge. Right. Yeah, there there probably is now. But what what are the social messages in Sesame Street? I mean, this is something I'd never thought about. Well, think about it. I mean, the show came out in 1969. You know, I mean, the civil rights movement was, you know, had really just taken hold in the mid 60s. And, you know, the the country was still largely segregated. And so the idea of displaying uh, a street, which had different looking people on it, that were all friends and interacted, was pretty radical at the time. And that was the in many ways, the basis of the show that and the idea about using commercials to sort of teach concepts to children. So I mean, a lot of those, those sort of intercut segments or 60 seconds or less, which at the time was the length of a commercial. And so that was the that was the, the real breakthrough of Sesame Street in the late 60s, early 70s. Huh. I never really thought about that, of course, growing up with it. Um, but you're right. It is kind of like left of center, not propaganda, because it's purely educational in so many ways, but it, it's a little bit progressive. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And even to this day, what they've been doing with um, showing uh, people that have different abilities on the show and featuring characters that are in, in mobile devices and things of that, that nature, it's, it's, they're pretty out there. When's the last time you watched Sesame Street? Because it's been a while for me, I gotta be honest. You're really losing touch with your roots, Jordan. True. Uh, you, know, you know, you leave Detroit, you go out to the West Coast, and like, you think, like, I don't need Sesame Street anymore. Too good for Sesame Street. It was a little earlier than that that I stopped watching, but uh, but it is interesting to see. I haven't watched in a few years, I and mean, my kids are now a little older. So when my kids were younger, oh, that makes sense. I watched it with them, but uh, but I haven't watched it in a couple of well, let me see, a couple of years probably. How do I get on Sesame Street? Is my is my the real question that I'm digging at here? Oh, how do you get on it? <laughs> yeah, without being an an without putting on an animal or a monster suit. That is. You know that like Sesame Street is now going to HBO. I did not know that. 
it's in like, I think 10 days or something, it's going to debut. It, it's leaving public television and it's going on HBO. Big Bird's getting a huge raise. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Big Bird's going to like have a nice uh, Tribeca loft. <laughs> yeah, he's leaving Sesame Street entirely, living a few blocks away. He's like, it's, it's been a good run, but uh, now it's time to, to, he wants to move on up like George and Wheezy. As long as they don't do a crossover with Game of Thrones, I think we'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> that would really, that would get a lot of ratings, though. Yeah, for sure. Well, But seriously, you know, yeah, when I watched it, I remember, like, Crystal Gale, who was this country singer from, like, the 70s and 80s was on there. She had really long hair. I remember that. I think Dolly Parton was on there. But now it's, you hear, like, oh, Justin Bieber's going on Sesame Street. Or maybe not Bieber, but... Uh, Justin yeah, sure Timberlake. Yeah, he might have been. But it, it seems strange because when I was young, I had to ask my parents who those people were. And I thought thought later on that it's weird that there's celebrities that go on the show because it just seems like, what's the point? It, it's just almost like a rite of passage. It's like being on The Tonight Show or something. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. And of course, if you've got kids, it's like for them. I mean, I think that's why Tina Fey did the, the Muppet movie, the, the more recent Muppet movies for kids that were like psyched about it. I, I mean, I think she liked the Muppets too, but... Yeah, I mean, let me know when when you want me to come and uh, hang with Oscar the Grouch and, and Cookie I, I Monster. I will definitely. Uh, I'll, I'll see if I can make some calls on your behalf, Jordan. Let's talk a little bit about more about your work outside of Sesame Street. Uh, one thing I thought that was interesting is you argue that it's pointless to try to avoid stress, which is contra to a lot of what people are talking about these days: limit stress, avoid stress, de-stress you know, detoxify to de-stress, all these different things. And you're like, look, there's no point in doing that. Yeah. When we think about stress, we tend to think about distress, which is like when you've got uh, a difficult boss or um, the equipment of your iPhone isn't working for a podcast, that kind of stuff where you feel like you're out of control. That's only part of stress. That's distress. But there's another kind of stress, which is doesn't get as much publicity, which is known as eustress, which is E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S. And it means positive stress. And that's the kind of stress that you get from a, a coach or a parent that's just trying to get you to be your best, that's really just pushing you along. And the reality is, is that without stress, we don't develop, we don't do anything. We need stress to develop and learn. And so it's a matter of just figuring out how to get the right kind of stress in your life and to, to minimize the kind of distress where you feel like you're out of control. We lump stress into one category. That's right. And without some degree of stress, we wouldn't do anything. We just sit around and you know stare at our belly buttons. It's stress that gets us out of the house. It's stress that gets us to develop, to learn. And even this experience, like which I'm totally enjoying, by the way, huh. there's some stress involved because like we're having a, we're having an interaction and we're both Right now, like if you were to like measure our, you know, our heart rates, our heart rates are up a little bit more because we're having an exchange, which is, this is some form of stress. And when you're asking me questions, it's getting me to think, you know, and this sort of back and forth is some degree of stress. And I think that that's, it's a very positive thing. You just need to be aware that, again, not all stress is created equal. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. 
Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data. And a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So isn't this kind of a semantic argument though? Because of course people are gonna not avoid the stress of getting a good media appearance, but they're gonna avoid the stress of worrying about something that might never happen that's causing them to lose sleep. Well, you know, then you're starting to get into a question about anxiety. And anxiety is different from stress. Anxiety is basically like a false alarm. And the reality is, is that, and this is why I tend to focus only on two things in my practice, which is now and next, because the only truth, the only reality that ever exists is the reality of right now. The future doesn't, ex doesn't exist yet because it hasn't happened. And the past is in your mind. And anxiety is basically like your alarm system is going off saying, oh my God, something bad is going to happen. And I'm going to try to, you know, it's sort of like your mind fools you into thinking that you're actually thinking about it, but you're not. Most of the time, what's happening is your mind is just circling around and around and around for possibilities that never exist. 
So for example, when I was in graduate school, I worked with this patient who uh, had a tremendous fear of flying. And she started dating this guy who was from Europe. And uh, he wanted to bring her home over the holidays. And in the, the weeks leading up to that break, she was she would come into each session with all of these ideas about what could possibly go wrong on the way there, right? And she would say, oh, what if the plane crashes? What if the, it was just on and on and on. And what actually happened was um, they got into a minor fender bender on the way to the airport, and they were fine. They were totally fine. But what was sort of interesting about that is when she told me about it is that was the thousandth and first scenario. You know, the, the one thing she didn't think of is the thing that happened. And that's the, the nature of anxiety is it's a very seductive process in the mind that makes you think that you're thinking about the future, but you're actually, you're not actually planning. You're just sort of running scenarios over and over and over again without the actual data, which is what's actually happening. Why do humans do that in the first place? Do you know? Well, I actually believe that we're sort of wired for anxiety. Makes sense. Yeah. The, the reality is that those of us that have come down through evolution, the people who have survived, have survived because our ancestors were super vigilant. They were very worried about things going wrong, so they would take precautions. And so the people that are left are the people that have been sort of inbred to be anxious. And so it is truly a part of our inherited thinking patterns that we've taken on from our ancestors. Okay, so that makes sense. It's kind of like, it's a survival mechanism of figuring out worst case scenario and maybe planning for it and or triggering that fight or flight, but we tend to live in it now. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So with your clients, for example, how are you looking at the bigger picture of their emotional well-being? These guys who are probably financially successful, you have a practice in Manhattan, for God's sake, you know, anybody who's walking in that door is probably got the bank account to back up some of their troubles here. So what do you focus on with these guys and girls? You know, I'm so glad that you you put point that out. It's absolutely true. And, you know, one of the concerns that people often express in here is a fear about running out of money. I often say basically what you just said, which is the reality is, is that you're probably not going to run out of money. Um, again, a lot of the people that these days who I see, that's not really the issue for them. But money itself, we're not, we're not actually wired to understand money. Money is this totally recent abstract concept on the evolutionary stage that we don't understand. What we understand is food. <laughs> okay. And that we understand. And because that's been, you know, obviously what we've worried about for most of our lives, like how are you going to have dinner, so to speak. And so what we end up doing is we end up mixing up these concepts of am I going to have enough food with am I going to have enough money? Right. Okay. And so sort of trying to get people to focus on you know, problems that are actual problems versus imagined problems. That's a, t a challenge to, to try to get people to see that certain things are things that, that are actually within the realm of things that they can have an influence over, certain things that are not. One of the things that often comes up in my office is the notion of control. People like to think that they have control over things. And the reality is that none of us have control over really anything. If we're lucky, we have influence over things. And that's a great thing. But that's, it's an important distinction to, to make that we have, hopefully, we have influence over things, but we do not have control over things. Well, what do you recommend we do? Relinquish the idea of control? Yeah. You can cultivate the notion of influence in your life. And most of us have, well, hopefully, if we're fortunate, we have influence over things. But the pressure of control is something that, you know, often burdens people because they feel that, well, I can't control this. And 
the tighter we hold on to things and try to control them, oftentimes the more difficult it is to actually have influence over them. So how do we start to right that ship then? How do you teach your clients to look at the idea of relinquishing control as a good idea? Because it seems like to me, I wanna influence everything in my life because I'm a control freak. That's probably why I run a small business in the first place. How do you start to fix or rewire that process? Some of it is is truly biological. Even though obviously I'm trained as a clinical psychologist, I'm a huge, I, I read a lot about exercise and nutrition and, and meditation. I'm a huge proponent of meditation in all of its forms because when you do integrate these sorts of things in your life, like let's just take exercise for a minute. A lot of people who are having difficulties with mental health are not taking care of their physical health. And the relationship between the two is so airtight at this point. If you are exercising at least a few times a week, you're much less likely to be concerned about control. You're much less likely to be uh, stressed at all times because you're actually providing your body with appropriate stress. I mean, I can go on and on about the literature about this, but the, the value of cardiovascular exercise to the mental state is incredible. How do we get from, okay, do a lot of exercise to, oh, suddenly I feel more comfortable not being in control of everything directly? I mean, that doesn't really make sense to me. Well, as you can tell already, like a lot of my work is coming from evolution and evolutionary psychology, evolutionary biology. Our bodies, which, which are a lot of what we walk around with, don't get nearly enough activity for how much that they require, essentially. And so there's a lot of excess uh, energy basically built up, given how many calories we tend to consume in a day. And there's really nowhere to go for them except essentially burn them off through anxiety. And so if you are taking care of yourself from a cardiovascular standpoint, you're actually, you do become calmer because you're actually burning up some of those. Uh, it's sort of like with little kids or with dogs. I hate to say it, but like, you know, you, you wouldn't, if you have, do you have a dog, Jordan? Uh, no, but I grew up with one. Jason has a dog. And I just got a puppy. <laughs> like you, would, you wouldn't let your dog sit around all day without taking your dog for a walk at least a couple of times. Jason? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Every 10 minutes. Do you want to tell us something, Jason? Is this a, is like a confession time? No, no, no. I just got a puppy, so I know all about this. Yeah, it's the same, it's the same concept. If you don't let your kids get exercise, they have a lot of pent-up energy. And same thing with adults. Look, we get older, but we don't necessarily grow up. Like all the same patterns and processes that are with us in childhood are still with us in adulthood. So anyway, that's a long-winded, annoying explanation for why uh, cardiovascular exercise is so important to, uh, to mental health and especially to anxiety. Huh, so basically, well, let me see if I'm following you here. The need for control creates a little bit of energy because we don't actually have that control and that, that nervous energy can be burned off by having anxiety and biting your nails and doing all the little nervous habits that people have or you can burn it off by going for a long jog or a bike ride instead both of those things will process the need for control. One, of course, exercise being more, the more efficient way to do that. Is that kind of what you're saying? Or am I missing something? That's in essence, that's it. It's not just about control. But yes, it does burn off some of the sort of excess energy that gets wrapped up into things like control and, and, and anxiety. So all right, we already know that people need to exercise to be to be healthy. So let's sort of jump through this a little bit. What other things do you find get in the way for your clients? You mentioned before cognitive biases getting in their way. What types of things are we talking about? Well, 
you know, one of the cognitive biases is the illusion of control. It's something that stays with us that we, we think that we have more control over things than we actually do. And when you can break things down and focus on, so for example, one person who I'm working with is applying to medical school and he put himself in a very, very good position, but he didn't get into the first few schools that he applied to. And he came in and he, you know, he was quite distraught and he said, look, you know, I'm not going to get in anywhere. And I said, well, look, the reality is, is that you have done what you can do, you know, right now, because you don't have an answer, you're feeling uncertain. So you're trying to reassert control, but there is no, there is no control. The applications are out. And right now, actually, what I've been trying to do is just get him to be distracted until he gets an acceptance, which is the high likelihood that he will ultimately be accepted. You know, in these periods of the of unknown, we tend to try to reassert some form of control. By worrying or something. Exactly, exactly. Got it. Okay, interesting. I didn't realize that worry was an attempt to control a situation that you could not control. Yeah. One thing that I think is interesting is that people have unbelievable resources and resolve. Uh, and when situations don't go well, I've seen people come up with extraordinary, extraordinary problem solving abilities. More often than not, the difficulty is sort of what I call anticipatory anxiety. It's the anxiety leading up to the event that is the main source of, of stress. It's when people actually have to do something, when there's like an actual emergency, that people are actually pretty, usually pretty adaptable. That's a relief and surprising. Yeah, no, it, it's it's true. We're, we're, look, we're a pretty adaptable bunch. And you mentioned something earlier, which I think was an astute point, which is like the fact that, you know, basically things are moving so rapidly and that everything feels like it's sort of a state of emergency these days and everything needs to be done right now. And the reality is that there are some things that are actual emergencies, but they're pretty limited. What's really important and, you know, we tend to think, we tend to sort of get caught up in the idea that everything is important, but not everything is an emergency. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We talked pre-show as well and earlier in the show about the right type of stress. How do we get the right amount of stress to be at that sort of optimal operating point without going overboard and becoming the nervous Nelly who's constantly facing anxiety in, in the pursuit of high performance or the right type of use stress, as you called it? Well, this is an individual thing. There, there isn't really a blanket, a formula for this because some people just have a lot of energy and need for stimulation and some people don't. But the one thing I can say is to, one of the keys to looking out for yourself is if you start to behave in ways that are sort of illogical, um, if you start to fall back on patterns, if you start to get into arguments with people, if you tend to think that people are sort of maybe, and I don't mean this in a sort of full-on paranoid sense, but if you think that everyone's out to get you or people are against you or, you, you know, again, you're getting into fights or you're finding that you are retreating from society a little bit or you're eating more than usual or you're sleeping more than usual, anything that sort of 
anything that is a change in your equilibrium usually can signify a difference in stress. And maybe you have too much stress or too little stress in your life, potentially. So looking for those kinds of changes are often good ways to tell if you are either understimulated or overstimulated. So we can look at the uh, basically the results of of the stimulation itself, and we can say, okay, this is obviously too much. This is not enough. Exactly. Exactly. And it, and uh, okay, let me let me just sort of stop you here because I can definitely see. Wow, I'm I'm I've got too much stress. You know, I'm chewing my nails down to the bone, and I've. I haven't slept in three days. That's too much stress. How do we know if we don't have enough? That seems weird. Oh, I'm too relaxed. That does. I mean, nobody ever says that. Well, it's not really that. It's I think about it as like being understimulated or underused. And a lot of times, when when you have a lot of capacity, if you are doing something, uh, you're you're working at a job that isn't really uh, taxing you, sort of intellectually or cognitively, that isn't stretching you you can end up having a lot of the same experiences as if you're overstressed. So for example, a number of years ago, I was working uh, with this woman who had been uh, working at a job at a hospital, she's a very, very bright woman. But she was just finding that like she was, you know, having a lot of stress and and it wasn't really coming from work necessarily. But she was just finding that she was generally kind of stressed. It seemed to me that she was sort of overqualified for her job. And it turned out, as I peeled back the layers a little bit more, that she'd sort of taken this job when her kids were born, just you know, around when her kids were born, because she wanted to spend more time at home. But the reality is, is that job was kind of an off-ramp for her that really didn't wasn't serving her anymore. And once she realized that and she found a job that was a little bit more challenging, she was uh, challenging for her intellectually, she actually was in a much better place. Wow, so you can actually be stressed out by having something that's not challenging enough. That's something that makes total sense that I haven't really thought about recently, right? You can be stressed out knowing, because that's sort of a deeper level stress, right? You know you're you're not fulfilling your potential. So it's not necessarily the job, the day-to-day of the job that's stressing you out. It's the fact that you're bored and you know you're wasting your time. Yeah, and people will sometimes create stresses for themselves in those situations, like get into more conflicts with other people at work, and they're actually sort of, on some level, trying to stimulate themselves. And I've seen this happen plenty of times where people are just under-challenged where they are. So, all right, we know we need the optimal amount of stress. We know when we don't have enough slash too much. How do we get the right kind of stress in our life? Is there Are there things we can do each day to kind of get us in the optimal stress zone so that we don't do something by accident or even on purpose to max out the meter and go drive ourselves crazy? Yes. And I have to say that was very well put, uh, exactly what you just said. Um, I almost like want to steal that phrasing. That was, that's exactly it. You know, we, we end up trying to max things out uh, sort of inappropriately at times. You know, some of the things that we can do, you know, I mentioned some of the obvious ones that, you know, people know about, about exercise. You know, one thing that I can't admittedly say I do it all year round because I noticed that I'm not doing it now in the winter is taking ice cold showers. Uh, I definitely do it more as it gets warmer. And there's a lot of literature about people that do this that tends to tax the system in a very short-term way and uh, actually leaves you calmer. And there's also also all kinds of health benefits to taking ice-cold showers. Katherine Hepburn was famously she, – she went on this whole campaign trying to get people in Hollywood to do it, and no one did it. Tony Robbins swears by this. Tim Ferriss, I think he's found some literature about this as well. So, so taking ice-cold showers is a good way 
to give your body a little bit of stress in the morning that can help you throughout the day. And I've got to say, I've been doing ice showers since I was 19, except this morning when I woke <laughs> up and the uh, the water heater blew up and I took an ice shower because I had to and I didn't want to. So that was not the right type of stress today. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah, and like, especially in that case, like, because I found that like the cold water in the summer is a lot warmer than the cold water in the winter. <laughs> so, uh, you know, like I'm sure that it was ice, it was freezing, uh, really, really freezing. And that's, yeah, I think that Tony Robbins writes about this, but like he has it, you know, down to the temperature, like a certain, I don't know the number, but, but, uh, but he has the optimal temperature. He, he takes an ice bath every morning. So basically what we're saying is having the right kind of maybe low level stress will prevent us from subconsciously creating way too much of the wrong kind of stress. So we're sort of fine tuning it. It's, I'm trying to think of a good analogy here. Usually I don't get stuck for analogies, but this is really interesting. It's kind of like warming up a car so it's the right temperature to drive versus overheating it by just slamming on the gas and tearing off down the highway. That's exactly, exactly right. And again, you put it very well, uh, quite succinctly. That's exactly it. You're trying to find the right temperature and there was an article that came out recently about how the stress that from exercise and the micro tears that your body goes through uh, is very helpful for you when you get a cold. And that because this, again, there's certain types of inflammation that you're like almost training your body to how to deal with inflammation. And so it's more effective in fighting off colds. And it's kind of the same thing. You're keeping your mind at a certain, a certain level of stress um, so that you can be in the optimal zone of performance. And then there are times, of course, when you will want to totally de-stress and be away from it all, like on vacation. But but generally speaking, you want to be at a kind of a low level of stress. That's sort of certainly contrary to what a lot of health advice is, which is be as de-stressed as possible. Yeah, that's inaccurate. <laughs> right. Why is that the case, though? Like, why can't we just stay super relaxed all the time? Is it because external events and or our subconscious mind will sabotage that anyway, and it'll be much more harmful than just gearing it up to, to five instead of taking it to 11? Well, you know, I mean, again, using the kind of the analogy, the physical analogy, like if your system isn't ready for stress, it's almost like um, immunizations, like you have to be exposed to a lots of pathogens so that you can, you know, get used to them. And that's just reality. We all come into contact with pathogens. If we have had an immune system that hasn't had any uh, contact with these things, uh, our bodies kind of go into shock in dealing with them. And it's a similar thing for the mind. So this is very, it's very stoic philosophy here, like how Seneca would, you know, eat really bad food and wear really bad clothes for a week or a couple days out of every month, just to remind himself that things ain't that bad. And prepare him for if something really went down, he, like his system could actually handle that. This philosophy definitely does come from the Stoics. I've got, you know, Marcus Aurelius's literature here on my shelf. And yes, this definitely comes from a lot of those ideas. All right, back to the show. Now, last but not least, we talked about an interesting cognitive exercise. And the question was, what's the first thing to do when you miss a train or when you miss the subway, when you miss an airplane flight? What type of thought exercise is this? Because when I was thinking about this and doing it myself pre-show, I have two answers and they're both dependent on the current mood that I'm in, right? One is 
if I'm really laid back and I'm not in a hurry and you know I'm with people, I'm all right. Let's figure out how to solve this problem. Let's go to the gate. Figure out how we can get on a different flight. If it costs a little money, no big deal. We maybe have to wait. Let's get the Wi-Fi out. Do some work. If I'm in a bad mood and already stressed, it's I can't even say it on the show because we'll have to change our our rating and we won't be able to put it on the radio. So. It really depends on what's happened before that, what side of the bed I woke up on, et cetera. So the key here is this sort of circles back to what we've been talking about about earlier about what you can influence, what you can control, which I again say is very little to very little of what you can actually control. Um, when you miss a train, there's an immediate process that many of us go through, which is we think about what if, oh, if only I hadn't stopped to tie my shoelace, if only I hadn't you know, stop for those two seconds to say hello to that person, I would have made this train. <laughs> and a lot of us do this. And it's it's a foolish exercise, because there's an infinite regress there, right? You could just keep on going back and back and back throughout the day. We only do that because that's what we have the capacity to do, right? We can think about two or three moves, we can't think about 100,000 moves or more. And so when you remind yourself of that, and you take the time to actually breathe and be in the present and say, what can I do now? It's a great exercise. It's something that you can literally do if you take a train. You can do every day because I think it is in some ways it's sort of like a meditation, sort of realizing what you have control over and what you don't and being present. I mean, it, it does sound to me, Jordan, like, you know, you do this to some degree, which is like, you, you know, again, maybe it's when you're uh, woke up on the right side of the bed, but you, you think about what's the most adaptive thing I can do in this moment uh, at those times as opposed to getting totally lost in, you know, in, in holding on to the past, like the train's already gone, the plane's already gone. So going back and, and sort of circling around about what you could have done is really a pointless exercise that really does nothing but wind you up. And we know that intellectually, though, but in the moment, how does this become a drill that we can work on or that improves us in some way, other than knowing that we're frustrated? I, I, again, I take it, I think of it as an opportunity to exercise something in our minds and in our sort of in our beings, if you will, um, it's going to take a little time. Like most interventions don't happen right away. But if you're listening to this and you're thinking about this, you know, maybe not the next time you take the train, but the time after you'll think about this and you'll say, hey, what can I do here? Right? I'm going to stop. I'm going to breathe. And I'm going to focus on where I am right now, not the sort of endless circuitous machinations of the mind, which are trying to get me to think about things that are no longer relevant and try to keep yourself present and there may be opportunities there that exist from missing that train and sort of really just trying to take it as an actual exercise that you can do to help train your mind to realize what things you can influence and what things you can't influence. Thank you very much, Dr. Ben Michaelis. The, your next big thing, we'll have that uh, linked up in the show notes as well, the, the old Amazon link there, and we'll have your website linked in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for your time and your expertise. Thanks a lot, Jordan. Great talking to you. All right. Good job, man. Yeah, it was really fun. I mean, I, uh, you, you guys, I mean, you're, you're great. <laughs> I mean, really, I'm not, I'm not just saying that. Like, I have a lot of podcasts on my phone, you know, and I, I really enjoy listening to you. There's such a difference in quality when you're, this reporter called me like not that long ago. And uh, I was like, really impressed with him. And I, I didn't really know, I didn't know him beforehand. And I was just amazed at the quality of, of thought and questions that he asked. And then I Googled him afterwards and he's like a totally big deal. I mean, he's written a lot of stuff, written a bunch of books and like, you know, you can tell when someone's quality and I, I really feel that way about what you guys do. So I really am glad to be on the show. Well, thank you very much. We're glad to have you as well. And of course, we'll 
We'll link to your work in the show notes. Best of luck with the book launch. I know that can be a super big, stressful deal as well. So make sure you're taking your cold showers. Will do. Will do. Uh, Thanks a lot, guys. Appreciate it. Interesting stuff. I had no idea there were different, I guess maybe I did, but different types of stress, both good and bad, and that having the right amount of good stress could avoid you overloading on the bad kind, kind of puts another feather in the cap of exercise, which everybody knows they need, but I I like the cold shower idea, and I like the other sort of cognitive exercises to get us and get our heads in the right place. If you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank Dr. Ben on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well as, of course, his book and his website. You can tap the album art in most mobile podcast players. By the way, that's the logo with me and AJ, the cartoon me and AJ, to see the show notes right on your phone. And I'm on Twitter as well, at The Art of Charm, so come say hi there. Bootcamp details for our live programs, bootcamp.theartofcharm.com. Get in touch, get some info that way. And remember, subscribe and review in iTunes. Helps us feel proud and keeps us up in the ranks so that other people can find the credible advice that they need. It's also the best way to support the show other than purchasing products and training from us. Special thanks to both the Jasons and to Fogarty for their help in production of the Art of Charm podcast. Go ahead, tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. Now have a great week, and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and more at theartofcharmpodcast.com. 